0: Welcome to Planet Sci-com. This is our episode 10. Um I'm Jason McDermott, and I would like to uh, welcome our guest today, Dr. Hurd. He's a professor of biology at the University of New Brunswick. His work is on ecology and evolution, but uh, one of the things that caught my eye is that I saw on Twitter he had posted about a preprint they had that was assessing uh, how humor might affect the um, citations, uh, humor in uh, in journal article titles might affect um citation rate and so that was something that was very near and dear to our hearts on planet Psychom. um and i we invited him here to to talk about whatever he wants to talk about really so we'll probably have a discussion but i'd love to hear more about um the humor aspect so welcome steve
1: thank you thanks for having me
2: steve can you tell us a little bit about Uh, how you got to, well, your your background, I was going to say your history, but, you know, history can go. Anyway, your academic background and how you got to where you are. And um, let's start there.
1: Sure. Well, uh, a bit of a long and winding road, as academics sometimes are. Um, I've I've been in Ecology and Evolution for my whole career, uh, but within that, I have very limited attention span, so I've hopped around (laughs) quite a lot. Uh, I've... Worked on things as 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 uh, uh, different as um, uh, ecology of forest pest insects, uh, topology of evolutionary trees, uh, even the diversity of immune response uh, against viruses. Uh, just all kinds of things uh, because I just I, I don't know, get bored of things and do new things. Uh- <laughs> I have sort of more uh, uh, geographically. I, I did my undergraduate here in Canada at the University of Waterloo, did a PhD in, in Philadelphia at, at Penn, uh, postdoc in Vancouver, had a first faculty job at the University of Iowa. And about 20 years ago, moved here to New Brunswick, where I'm a professor at the University of New Brunswick, uh, uh, longest I've ever been in one place in my life. Uh, and I guess that's my very short version of my sort of origin story. Academically, the stuff we're talking about today—probably the, you know, the humor and titles and my book on writing and things like that—this is over sort of the last decade or so of my career when I've gotten especially weird, kind of slid <laughs> a little bit into. If I want to be academic about it, it's sort of called science studies, Uh, the study of how science is done and communicated and so on. Um, But that's just making it sound fancy. I really just got interested in weird stuff like humor and writing and things like that. So it's been kind of fun. I'm
2: I'm realizing. No, I'm just Observing that we have an affinity for Canadians on this show. We do. Steve is <laughs> our <true>. third Canadian <laughs> on this show. Mike Catchatori, John Besley. Right. And now Steve. Okay, sorry, Jason.
0: Uh, and, uh Julia.
2: Oh, and Julia's Julia. Also. Oh yeah. my gosh, I forgot. Yeah. Keep thinking Julia's Russian, which she is, but she Canadian. is, but
0: she was, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's really interesting because, uh, you know, one of the things that we like to ask uh, guests about is, you know, how they got here. Right. And and generally, we're talking about the science communication. And I think it's interesting because people are oftentimes curious about that. Like we're, you know, sometimes people start out in science communication. Oftentimes, I think that's not the case. Right. You start out with some, starting to do something else and then you move into science communication. Now. You like me. You're not primarily considering yourself a science communicator, but you've written a couple of books, and you definitely have a presence in that area. And so that's that's an interesting thing, right? Your weird stuff is like people are like, "Hey, we we want to hear more."
1: Yeah, that, that's right, Jason. And and so I wouldn't have known early in my career that there were people for whom science communication was the primary thing. Uh, right. I wasn't very well informed about the world outside of my bit of ecology and evolution so uh, I sort of slid into doing this stuff I've always sort of had fun talking about science to non non-scientists and and uh over the years you know did more and more radio interviews and things like that and and then uh now I forget uh eight years or so ago I started, started a blog which I originally conceived of as being talking to other scientists but but gradually realized I was talking to non-scientists as well um then and that's, in terms uh, of sci so sort of took some of my my least popular blog posts and turned them into a book about eponymous yeah. scientific <laughs> names that genuinely <laughs> is SciCom aimed at at the general public uh and so without really deliberately deciding to do it i i found a, a decent chunk of my time was being spent on science communication which is really important uh and it's important we do it and do it well but i have zero training on how to do it
0: Right. So uh, just for our listeners, that scientist sees squirrel, and we can link
1: that in our show notes. Right. That's the blog. Yeah.
2: It's so interesting. Sorry, because this is how I think most of our science communicators, so the practitioner guests who have been on our podcast, have a very similar. Story in terms of how they came to science communication, and this is one of the things that science communication as a field and as a discipline is thinking about in terms, like, how do we, what is our path to professionalization for science communicators? Right, um, for researchers in science communication, that's obviously more traditional in the in the you know academic space, um, but for communicators, how do we get to? finding a job and being able to do that right as our primary um, position, which, as I think, I mean, we're obviously biased. Most of our guests see this as a very necessary (laughs) thing. But I think in the uh, I don't want to say post pandemic, but in the like pandemic normal era, right, we have seen that science communication and health communication and all kinds of communication around scientific and technology issues is something that is very crucial
1: yeah absolutely and it's, it's interesting you sort of bring up this path to it because there there's a whole set of people whose training and, and origins are in journalism or uh, things like that I'm thinking you know, of of Ed young and, and Carl Zimmer and uh you know those are the famous ones but there's there, there are thousands of people right. like that and then there are people like like me and you uh Jason who've who have converged on this from the other poll uh uh but are doing it with so we you know we have a, maybe a deeper knowledge of the science part but we have like no training at all on how to actually pull off the communication part. Right. Uh, uh, so it's been it's been interesting because I even teach a bit about how to do it uh, uh, even though I don't know um, <laughs> and, and it's been really interesting seeing and thinking about the fact that there's this thing we all agree many of us agree is really important for us to do we've never been taught how to do it. it yeah,
2: yeah isn't that interesting? I mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you we know, all your time trying to become a scientist as, as you're trying, as you're b- working to become a scientist, you spend all your time in the lab, in the field, right. In some classes, you know, one thing I've heard in the past for proposing sort of communication classes as part of graduate curriculum is that, well, graduate students don't have enough time. Science graduate students don't have enough yeah. time to take that, right. We need to be in our labs. We need to be working on our research. We need to be, you know, in the field collecting data and, and, I sort of wonder, well, what happens after all of that? What What are you going to do with all the data, right?
0: The weird thing, the weird thing to me, and this just kind of occurred to me, is that there are, you know, kind of three main metrics of success that that and, and these are the these are the bean counting metrics, you know, how many grants can you pull in? How many publications can you get? How well do you do teaching? Right. If depending on where you're at. What is the common theme from all three of those things it's communication right if you're not communicating well if you're not able to communicate your ideas and get people excited you're not going to land any grants. And you're going to like not not succeed so it's really interesting to me that this is like one of the neglected places I don't think I had any formal training of presentations or, or writing style or anything at all. And my, my, my mentor was great at helping me, but that's kind of like how it is, right? It's a patchwork of like, whoever will teach you this stuff.
1: Although Jason, all those things are communication that's internal in a way to to science and yeah. even even the teaching, because at least in, in the institutions I've been in, non-majors teaching is often looked down on a, a little bit oh, really? uh, as, a, as a as a contribution yeah. to the department. So well, okay, you know, I would rather be teaching real courses to real majors, but all right. Um, all <laughs> right. People scientists who have who have gone the route of of real external communication, I'm 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 thinking, you know, Carl Sagan and 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 uh, um, uh, and uh, you know Neil Grass, Tyson, and and um, uh, David Suzuki, uh, aren't always super respected by scientists necessarily, mm. right? Yeah.
2: Yes, we had there's a there's a term for that. It's called Saganization because Carl Sagan was one of the very first of this, right? Breed like new sort of breed of scientists that are very high profile in media and very high profile to public audiences, but their peers don't necessarily consider them, "Oh, well you you do a lot of public communication, so you mustn't be a very as good a scientist as somebody who doesn't." Somehow
3: I think that's really interesting that there's, you know, you've got Saganization, but then you've got people who are very much anti that. Like, if you look at Richard Feynman, nobody thinks about Richard Feynman and thinks, oh, that's not a scientist. Everybody's like, no, 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 that's a scientist. But I mean, he credits his biggest discovery as publicly demonstrating the reason why Challenger exploded with his um, rubber C-clamp experiment in a bucket of ice water during a live press conference, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it, so you know one thing I I'm I'm wondering about that because I think if you ask someone to like somebody you meet on the street to name a scientist, what do we think is the first name? Richard Feynman is not the first name not that first comes name. to mind, right? Yeah. No. I don't even know if like Carl Sagan is the first name that comes to mind. I actually uh, think it's Bill Nye.
3: Oh, Einstein. I was gonna say Einstein. Bill Nye. Yeah, Bill Nye. Yeah,
2: Steve, and I think I think it's Bill Nye, but but you know <laughs> from a scientist perspective. I'm not sure that many scientists consider Bill Nye, sorry, Bill Nye fans, to to do this to all of you
3: out there, right? But hey, Bill Nye, if you want to come on this podcast, do it. We'll talk science. We we will talk. We will totally respect you, by the way. And I'm not
2: saying that you're not a scientist, Bill. (laughs) I'm just saying that you may not, like other scientists may not see you as that. Okay, I'm going to stop talking to Bill here.
3: Uh, (laughs) But why? He seems cool.
2: I, yeah, I mean, Steve is cool.
1: It's true. I don't have a bow tie, though.
2: You don't have a bow yeah. tie right now. That can Although, be fixed. Yeah. yeah, I think that could be. Yeah. Right.
1: Although I guess it's a podcast. I could say I have a bo-
2: bow tie. You could and, say, and, yeah. That's a very nice know? bow
0: tie you have there, Steve. It's a lovely bow Thanks, tie. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Yours is <laughs> nice, too. <But> thank you.
2: <laughs> We're <just> all wearing <laughs> bow ties. My We're all
3: wearing wear bow ties. Bow tie. <laughs> and we have a title for the episode.
2: <laughs> bow ties all, all around. We're
3: all wearing bow ties. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, so, um, so what led you steve then to to write the book about science writing yeah about definitely writing that's kind of what i'm i'm curious about what is the impetus right for that
1: sure well, that, that was a in hindsight of a, 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 a sort of ma- major sort of turn in my uh, science career so I, I started working uh gosh must be uh, uh about a decade ago or more now on the book that became the scientist guide to writing uh, which is uh, for those listening that don't know it, it's a it's really a guidebook for early career scientific writers. Uh, in hopes to help people write more efficiently, more effectively, uh, and uh, and hopefully do that without boring the pants off of them. Because uh, you know a lot of <laughs> writing books are a little dry. Um, so you asked sort of how I can do that. So here's the part where I where I admit to being stupid on on your podcast. Um, I, I I remember this distinctly. I remember thinking, Gosh. I spent a lot of time in my career telling different students the same things about writing over and over again. Uh, Every new student, I tell all the same things about writing. And I thought to myself, and here's the stupid part, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be easier if I just wrote it all down?
2: (laughs) I think that to myself every semester when I write a syllabus. (laughs) Every semester.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So so first of all, it wasn't, as you can imagine, it wasn't easy. I mean, writing a book isn't Easy. It, yeah. it took, I don't remember now, five or six or seven years to write the damn thing. Um, uh, and secondly, it didn't work anyway because, you know, my own grad students won't read it. So what um, <laughs> other folks have, and that's great. Uh, but anyway, so that was the origin story that I really thought, you know, I, I I have painfully learned a bunch of stuff about writing over my years as a scientist, um, especially not being a particularly uh, easy or good uh a natural sort of writer. Like most of us, I, I fight to write. Uh, it's painful. Um, and I thought, well, I've, I've learned bashing my way through this over the years. I should really write this stuff down and, and share it. And so that's sort of uh, where it came from. And doing that was super interesting because it, it forced me to think um uh, more explicitly but a lot of stuff i'd never i'd sort of been aware of but never really thought about which is sort of you know why do our papers look the way they do why why did people write the passive voice so horribly for so long uh why do we have abstract introduction methods results discussion um uh, you know all kinds of things like that and these these things all have backstories and then sometimes the history is really interesting the history of the passive voice thing is actually really interesting if somewhat distressing um <clears throat> and, and the short version is we used to write in the active voice around the beginning of the a century or so science sort of became professionalized and there was this big emphasis on on supposed objectivity and you you didn't mention uh, yourself because that would that would right. suggest so we somehow decided that if you just pretended you didn't exist, then you're objective. <laughs> um,
3: well, anyway that was w- a big thing how would, and, and, we, and, how would we have had them right?
1: How would we have had them write?
2: <laughs> wow. wow.
1: More simply than that would be the
3: answer.
1: <laughs> it's, it's nice now seeing, and, and different fields are going at different rates in this, but sure. there's a return to writing on the active voice across many, if not all all fields of science, and I I actually think that's a, a good thing. It makes the writing more engaging and a bit simpler. Uh, real humans do science, and pretending that's not true doesn't – I don't think really gets us anywhere. Anyway, that, that's the kind of thing that this book forced me to think more about, and it was really fun. And I, I found myself going down historical rabbit holes and exploring You know, some of the the papers in the very first issue of the very first scientific journal that yeah. uh, uh, are really, really weird and fun. Um, And I even, in the end, wrote uh, a whole chapter about beauty and humor in scientific writing, which is super weird. No one ever talks about that. You're not supposed to talk about that. Uh, But I I accidentally discovered that people are really interested in that. Um, And and so this sort of (laughs) emboldened me to do the kind of weird science study stuff that I – seem to be doing now and think about, you know, funny paper titles and uh, other stuff like that. So what an interesting way to have my career go off the rails.
3: So what's, (laughs) so what's one of your, uh, or one or two, wherever they are in your scheme of your favorite humor findings from back in the day. Do you have any that just stay front of mind at all times because they're so amazing, ridiculous, awesome. Do you mean, uh, um, uh,
1: uh, Uh, examples of humor in in scientific writing
3: sure i mean my favorite example that always stays front of mind is a paper from seymour benzer on the topology or some such of dna from the 1950s where he describes his results as violently anomalous oh nice (laughs) and that just that makes me think okay were the results so anomalous that they themselves were violent or did you become violent as a result (laughs) of these anomalous results? And I need both to exist. Really? One, one of my
1: favorites is, is, is a little more gentle than that one, I guess. But, um, there's a paper from oh dear, and I'm forgetting now, the 50s or so, uh, and it's uh, one of the papers that first outline what we now call the Calvin cycle, which is the, mm-hmm. the bunch of the very complicated mm-hmm. photosynthetic machinery that that, that uh, uh, runs respiratory machinery. And I can tell I'm not i I'm not, I'm not a biochemist <laughs> um, uh, that sort of runs cells and 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 in the paper there's a, a piece of apparatus and it's it's got a, a chamber full of full of algae and then there's there's tanks and valves because they're bubbling nitrogen through it and 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 they're sucking off the gases and analyzing uh, you know carbon dioxide and oxygen there's there's, uh, there's valves and tubes and all kinds of stuff it's quite complicated and, and you don't even notice it unless you zoom in but if you zoom way in on this figure. Uh, the little algal culture vessel in the center of this big nest of tubing and valves and stuff, there's a little stick figure fishing. Yeah, uh, It's got That's nothing great. to do with <laughs> the science, right? But it's just, it's just great. And it's one of the, it's so subtle because you could easily flip right through that figure and, and never even notice it unless you looked really carefully. I actually scanned it and blew it up big and went, Oh yeah, that really is. Uh, it's great. Uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, to me, uh, and it's, it's amusing. It's engaging. There's no harm. There's no danger of it actually confusing anyone. No one's going to think there's actually a little stick guy fishing, and that's an important part of your experiment. I mean, it's not like <laughs> don't think there's any danger of the human being leaders a hundred times and cannot get the stick figure at the right size. <laughs> right, exactly. We can't get them to twitch the twitch the line to catch the fish. Yeah. So I really like that one. Uh, there are lots of examples. They're mostly like that. They're mostly kind of subtle. I'll tell you another of my favorites, uh, because it's because it's one of my own. Um I wrote a paper about a uh, uh, a particular bit of population biology it doesn't really matter. Uh, um and part of the paper wound up being one of these conceptual figures. It has again lots of circles and arrows and boxes and some pathways. And it wound up having some pathways that were numbered and lettered. So there was Pathway 1A and 1B and 2A and 2B and so on. And one of the ecological mechanisms was sort of interesting because depending on something, it could either follow pathway 2B or pathway 2A. And I snuck in a footnote... That just said to be or not to be that is the question <laughs> uh, and i was very proud of getting that one through review uh, again mm-hmm. i don't think it was going to confuse anybody if they somehow didn't recognize that as a you know quote from hamlet they would just go yeah that is the question and move <laughs> on um so i like that one and and i'm inordinately proud of it as you can tell <laughs> so so you said something interesting there,
0: and I've seen this before really? because I've I've used. Yeah, well, you said, a no, OK, so you said a number of interesting probably things. An accident. <laughs>
2: Accidentally interesting. Another Accidentally title. interesting.
0: So so I've used a number of these examples in, in some talks that I have about using humor in in science and um, not not the examples that you've listed there. But I, I was aware of, of the one with a stick figure. Um, and you said something about sneaking it by reviewers. And that's something that has come up before, which is this kind of like there's like a, a tension. Right. And, and I think that gets back to what you were talking about earlier about this kind of perceptions about how science should be versus maybe the way it could be engaging and i just wanted to you to expand a little bit on that because i think you probably have lots of things to say about that but um i'm interested <laughs> to hear
1: Yeah, and you know, I tell that story about the the footnote where I snuck it past, and I've had other examples where I've failed to sneak things past. Yeah, I wrote a paper some years ago about uh, well, it touched on pollination in a a a particular plant uh, that that. doesn't have attractive flowers. Uh, yeah, somehow manages to self-pollinate, and we thought it was just because the flowers, you know, shake around in the wind and pollen gets knocked about. And so I, I said that, and I, I I put in a citation, which was basically to uh, Jerry Lewis's song, "Whole Lot of Shaking Going On." <laughs> and the reviewers weren't having that one. Uh, they, wow. uh, I, I had to drop that. Uh, which I thought was kind of sad. Because, again, it wasn't going to confuse anybody, right? It was just, you know, people might roll their eyes. and If they didn't think that joke was funny, that's fine. But the position of the reviewers there was that not that that joke wasn't funny, but that jokes don't belong in papers, which is a very different uh, position, right? And I think there's there's this view of our literature as being a very serious thing. uh, And also this very powerful uh, desire for a need for conformity and 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 we it's it's our own fault we, we we teach undergraduates to write papers largely by saying write this like a scientific paper and they say what does that mean and you, and you say well go read some and write like those right. um, yeah. and they go read some papers and they're boring they're 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 tedious and they're turgid and they're full of acronyms and stuff uh, i mean my papers are too i'm not saying i'm different and so they write just like that. And so they write in the positive voice and they throw in 800 acronyms in every sentence and, and they never, ever make a joke. Um, and this is powerfully self reinforcing because then their own papers, when I publish them, are like that too. And I think people think that our literature should be like that because it's got to sound like science. And that means sounding very serious. And yet, what I've found over the years when I talk about this weird, weird stuff, and I've given talks at conferences about this and thought there'd be two people there, but the room is packed. uh, I think people, individually, many people wish they could do this stuff. They wish they could write more interestingly. They wish they could read things that were more interesting. But they feel they can't because they have to conform to what. You know what what sounds science and so i think you know what i'm seeing is reviewers sometimes genuinely believing that no look it's not just not appropriate to make jokes in science and sometimes maybe secretly wishing you could but saying look you know sorry but you shouldn't do that <laughs> uh, so I, I think you're right with this tension right because uh, i don't yeah. think there's lots of interest in 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 doing things like, and as you know there's a paper with a funny title comes out you take it down the hall and you show it to your buddy. You go, "Oh, look at this!" Right. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, or you you nail it up by the photocopier, or you tweet about it, or something like that. And yet, uh, when you propose to use a funny title yourself, reviewers go, oh, "I don't know about that." So, yeah, right. definite tension.
2: So, and kind of that point. So, I want to read a little paragraph from your blog post about that, um, Steve, because. Uh, our media scholar listeners, our communication theory listeners will recognize it. Um, And so you write, each of us is convinced that everyone else thinks our literature should be tedious. Therefore those few people who actually do think so are able to speak loudly while the majority who disagree do so silently. And that is characteristic. I I thought this
3: wasn't a political podcast.
2: It's not a political <laughs> podcast.
3: What? So
2: why do you say that, Patrick? I'm curious.
3: Uh, because I want everybody to think like I do.
2: <laughs> no, so this is this is actually, I mean, this is a theory from political science, right? There's an Elizabeth uh, German um, political scientist, Elizabeth Nolte Neumann, and she came up with the spiral of silence theory, and this is the idea that you know, there's a, a one person speaks up loudly, and everybody, you know, you perceive that other people right. Are, are supportive Mm -hmm. of that position, which is, you know, counter to your own, right? This is exactly like, oh, I can't use, I can't write like a normal human being in scientific literature. Um, The other thing I think I wanted to mention is that, Steve, I've started... Not me, because I don't write jokes very well, but I have I write about humor and I study humor in science communication. And one of my co-authors on a recent paper is Kasha Patel, who I hope we have on this podcast at some point. She is a stand up comedian. She does science comedy um, with DC Science Comedy. And she co-authored a paper with me and some colleagues and she wrote some jokes in them. So I'll just I'll just read you the first line of this paper, the introduction. Climate disasters are like reality TV dating shows. They are increasing in volume and we are the cause. (laughs) And it's a paper about, you know, using humor, right? And and, and science comedy. That's funny. um, Then in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic emerged like a surprise contestant on The Bachelorette vying for our (laughs) attention. (laughs) This is what we wrote in a paper. And I I don't know if reviewers were just sort of, you know, skip the introduction part or... First paragraph think isn't I, always I, the most important, right?
0: I don't know. That sounds that sounds to me like you made it such an integral part of your your point that maybe they found it hard to suggest that you take it out, right?
3: That's a good cold open. Like
2: I mean the bachelorette bit, probably not integral to my yeah, paper. Let's, yeah, I guess let's that's be honest, how you
1: know. <laughs> but what I like about those is that, that to me is an invitation to read further, right? Uh, and so there's a really important paper in my field that's very boring, uh, 25 pages long, about uh, something called pseudo replication, which is a statistical issue. Um, but in it, the author talks about. Uh, Demonic intrusion. Oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah, I read by. Right? Read your uh, blog post. And that demonic, intrusion? Alone, demonic intrusion. So your experiment goes wrong because of what he calls demonic intrusion, which he then explains. It turns out it's a, it's a thing, and and you would reckon, recognize it really more as as statistically as confounding. Mm. But that doesn't matter because by the time you've heard the phrase demonic intrusion, you've got to read on to figure out yes. what that's about, <laughs> right? If, if it weren't for that, the paper would be, despite its importance, really quite dull. Um, I think. And that paper has been cited th- literally thousands of times, and I think a big chunk of that is because there was a hook uh, mm-hmm. that brought you into it. So I think uh, Sarah, what you've done there is is sort of the same thing: is you've you, you've 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 engaged the reader and you've you've given them a reason to stick with this paper instead of throwing it aside for one of the other 150 papers sitting on the file folder right in front of them, right?
2: I, I would love to take credit, but I'm going to have to credit Kasha with that because. Right. None of my jokes would ever make it into a paper, <laughs> right? They'd be so bad they'd get, you know, the reviewer just roll their eyes, and, like put a little eye roll emoji next to it in the in their comments to me, you know?
3: So, so I've got a question there about demonic intrusion, not specifically as the concept <laughs> that's being talked about, but as a two-word phrase. So recently I've been sort of going down the rabbit hole on... Um, validity of papers and fakeness of papers in scientific writing, and there's a whole big push of a group of people that are doing awesome work to find papers that are basically coming out of paper mills. Like these are not <laughs> real papers; <laughs> they're submitted. Uh, Wait, apparently, say, more common.
2: Say more about these paper mills. I'm.
3: I understand the... them superficially, and that is to say, it is a group of individuals that formulate a paper. Create data and then gather authors, and the authors can be invited or pay for the opportunity to publish in these. And it artificially inflates paper counts by publishing not real or halfway formulated or repetitive, like repeat science, basically. So
2: they're fabricated data. Often. Hmm.
3: So I. And so,
0: yeah. Go go ahead, ahead, Jason. Now, I was going to say, I, I saw a, an example of this a long time ago where people were taking early gene database. Uh, this was an institution, same authors, very formulaic. It would basically go into about a human gene and would just kind of dump the database. So it it wasn't, you know, fabricated. It just wasn't useful, right? You could go to the database and actually get this, but it was written up as a paper. And they were like, 200 of these papers from the same people mm-hmm. and
2: the authors are scientists i'm trying to figure out like are they that's legitimate science. scientists or like right. what well, is the? it depends you
3: know? you know it depends on your system if you're required to publish x number of papers per year to be considered at some level oh sure then there's a lot of people that will go to blanks to do that and that's not an indictment one way or another i'm not you know, whatever. Um, but where this is all going is there's a group that looks for or looks at how to identify these papers. And one of the things that they look for are what are called tortured phrases. So these are two or multi word phrases that a native speaker would not use. Mm. So something like breast cancer might be called mammary disease. And, you know, if you're talking about a veterinary paper, yeah, sure. But if you're talking about a human, cancer paper no no one would ever write that right (laughs) so you deploy ai on swaths of papers and find ones that have consistent usage of these tortured phrases and i kind of wonder if something like demonic intrusion or idioms would now enter into the fact checker to find fake papers
1: Oh, right, because they don't look like the you yeah. know the normal paper. Right. Well, that's a disturbing thought. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to identify anything that with any character as obviously not real science. Oh dear, right. <laughs> Stamp it out.
2: Which is the perpetuation of this issue in c- poor communication that we've been talking about, though, right? I mean, exactly like, uh, having to say you need to fit this mold in order to be considered a scientific, a rigorous scientific paper, and to be considered a rigorous scientist is. Um, disingenuous because like you said right and like we've talked about I mean science is is a human endeavor like we do science as a species and so I mean to pretend that it doesn't include all the characteristics of humans is a little bit um, well,
0: you've yeah. got the flip side, too. So you've got the flip side of what uh, Patrick was talking about, which is you have actual papers that have been written by AI now that have been submitted to journals and accepted. Oh. So you do actually there are places where people have taken the human out of the loop and now yeah. they're garbage papers. They're just they're they're sometimes done to be a stunt to basically say, you know, peer review is broken. And other times it's unclear sure. why they're why they've been done.
2: Hmm. But this is where I think if you sort of inject character into your papers, it's harder for AI to replicate those and sound like a rigorous paper. I'm just saying. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Right now, now, that's true. This is the thing. Um, A lot of linguists are looking, for example, as how you recognize humor or sarcasm or things like that online, right? And in, in linguistic patterns. And computers are just not good at that. I think humor is one of these amazing things that we as humans are able to recognize, right? Even even when we're not in person, like I can recognize that Patrick is being sarcastic and giving me a sarcastic look, for example.
3: So right? Sarah, it's not happening right now. It's about my bow tie, which is lovely. <laughs> oh, the bow tie <laughs> is very nice, Patrick. Thank you. How did how did you get those tiny
0: polka dots on them? That's what I wanted. Microbes. Um microbes. Oh, microbe-based bow tie would be awesome so mm. so steve i wanted to go back um to something that sarah said that um you know machines are bad at recognizing humor i noticed something from your preprint and your blog post that uh you'd probably be able to speak to is that humans also are bad at recognize or bad at being consistently recognizing the same things as humor and i wanted to wanted you to like maybe talk about that a little bit because i thought it was very interesting
1: yeah so i uh, had the same thought when sarah mentioned that um uh so in the, the preprint you're talking about, we asked whether papers with funny titles would be cited more or less than papers with serious titles. And there is actually a small literature on this, but uh, we didn't think it was the question was really settled so we did some uh, citation analysis we 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 looked at a big corpus of of paper titles about 2500 had a panel of of uh, 10 people score them uh, rate them as from totally serious to laugh out loud funny to something in between uh and then we tried to correlate those scores with citation rates and and, and uh um, to get, I'll get to, back to your point about judging humor in a second but uh the the, the bottom line is it was actually kind of interesting um, first of all, we tend to give funnier titles to papers that we probably think are less important. Uh, yeah. If you correct for that bias, but only if you correct for that, then funnier titles do actually get cited more in the in the long term, which is which is kind of neat. It means you you can be a little creative with the title and not you know doom your paper to the to the dustbin. But what was what what I didn't expect um, maybe I should have is that if you looked at the scores uh, that the Ten human scorers gave to those titles, and asked, "Well, did they all think the same title was funny?" Uh, the answer was generally no. There was very low correlation between the humor scores given by scorer A and the humor scores given by scorer B. Not zero correlation. There was, you know, they definitely agreed to some extent, but there were all kinds of things that um, one scorer found quite funny and one scorer didn't even didn't even register, uh, and so. You know, there's a bit of a, a lesson there in a way that um, uh, if you're considering using humor in a in a talk or in a paper or something like that you, you can't expect everyone to get your joke and that's why when I talked about you know that 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 to be or not to be footnote I said it was sort of important that if someone didn't get the joke it wouldn't lead them astray they just this would sort of go on not notice it um so there's quite a lot of just disagreement uh, and that probably shouldn't have Surprise me because you know you know in the in the preprint i mentioned that we have south park and we have the satanic verses and 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 the fact that both those things exist at once probably tells us that humor is a pretty individual (laughs) subjective thing we all differ a little bit right um and and the same is true for offensiveness which which winds up being a bit correlated with humor in paper titles interesting we had people rate the titles they found offensive and um, actually the single funniest paper title in our database was also the single most defensive paper title on database. It was a review paper called Nice Snake, Shame About the Legs. Uh, and people thought that was quite funny. It was the only paper that was rated at least a little bit funny by every single score. The only one out of 2,500, mm. uh, but, but it also got the highest defensiveness score of everything. So there's maybe a cautionary uh, note <laughs> What was there offensive about to- that? Uh, there there are there are a large number of papers that, that, that rely on paper titles that rely on sort of mild sexual innuendo. innuendo and that was that was one of them. And you know, some is. people uh, think. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Good. for asking,
1: Patrick. Now,
0: yeah. now we've just I, rated. we moved our rating made up it from PG to R. I know. Now we have to rate
2: <laughs> this particular episode differently than the others because you had to have Steve explain that joke. <laughs> which I'm absolutely sorry. makes it more funny
1: it. <laughs> yeah. jokes, but which also more funny. gets to the, the the whole point which is that uh uh the scorers perceptions of offense were also very uneven uh so it it just you, you can't rate these things as, as objectively funny or not funny or offensive or not not offensive despite those low correlations we still see the citation effect so so despite mm. the fact not everyone gets the joke the same way it still seems to be uh I was going to say useful, that's not a, That's not the right way to say it. It still seems to be fine uh, in terms of the impact of your work to to put jokes in paper titles. Uh, despite the fact we think science is supposed to be serious and maybe we, we, we roll our eyes, but we still notice those papers. And having noticed them, we read them. And having read them, we sometimes cite them. So there, that seems like a win.
2: Well, and, and humor is one of those things that also kind of is easier to remember, right? It's very attention-grabbing. And so I think one of possibly one of the explanations for the citation rate is I remember this paper because, right.
1: Right. And that would actually explain the fact that, that, that offensiveness was also positively not oh. negatively correlated with right. citation rates. There's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> I've recreated that.
2: Yeah. For, for scientific papers. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that, and so I think there the the outcome variable right citation rates, um, is is a little different from, like attitudes for example because of the valence right citation rates is sort of like up or down with attitudes there's a little bit of like do I agree depending on what the joke is on and so, you know that's that's. Interesting. And I'm going to have to think about that a little more because like this idea that no publicity is bad publicity for science is probably Can't completely not.
1: completely be true, right? Right.
3: Can't yeah.
2: completely yeah. be true for science, yeah. depending on what your intended goal is, right? So if the intended goal is to increase the citation rate, then, then you could imagine or you could hypothesize that anything that makes your paper more memorable might do that. Might be and correlated. some of those things might
3: might be bad ideas. Might yeah, be, and no, some of those things
2: <laughs> yeah. might be yeah. not great ideas.
3: Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, we could use Andrew Wakefield as a study case for that entire discussion. Oh my gosh! Yeah.
2: We have to explain who Andrew Wakefield is and what that oh. paper is about.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Real quick. Uh, that was a study from the late '90s, published in the Lancet, that dealt with uh, vaccines and how they could lead to the onset of autism. And it used an incredibly small, hand-picked sample size, and ended up being the basis for a great deal of influence in the cultural zeitgeist. And I just wanted to use that word. Um, nice and. Resulted in a great deal of issues around vaccines and compliance and feelings about them and set off a chain of events that ended up with the primary doctor involved, Andrew Wakefield, being uh, removed from medical professions, seeking or uh, um, facing court situations that ended poorly for him and ultimately retraction of the paper, but caused a whole bunch of issues following its publication. So. Well,
1: Patrick, in in that case, I, th- I think you know that paper had its huge and very unfortunate impact, not because of its presentation, but because of its contents.
3: Mm, that's fair. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah. it, came, it, it gave a result fraudulently that people desperately wanted to hear, I mm, would right. say. Um, so I, I think it's a little different. Um, and I'm sort of glad because I, I would really, really hate for a podcast about my work to have led us to. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: so and here – yeah, well here we come to this idea of information and knowledge not being the only thing, right? Because Steve said something important here is that it was what people wanted to see in the data. So there was some pre-existing value or ideology or right predisposition to taking that position. Now there are fraudulent data to right? of support that position and so as humans we are very good at rationalizing information to fit our world views we're not necessarily rational information processors
3: so i guess that begs the question when you have humor in something that you're presenting what role does that have in the presentation versus the actual content
1: that's an interesting question and i i've sort of thought about it mostly in terms of presentation and the way it recruits or engages or retains readers. There are there are cases where the humor is much closer to the content. Uh, and there's a good example in 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 my own field, and you'll recognize this probably from your own, which was the Red Queen hypothesis. Uh, the name of that hypothesis in evolutionary biology is just the idea that if if you and an enemy species are both evolving, you may both have to keep evolving to keep up with the other. So it becomes an arms race. Uh, and that's of course a reference to the Red Queen from Alice with the Looking Glass. And it's quite a funny scene where the Red Queen explains to Alice that in in Wonderland you you have to run as fast as you can just to stay still. Uh that's one where where the humor is more integral to the actual content. And that's a metaphor that caught on, and that's and everyone calls the hypothesis that now, whether they've read Alice with the Looking Glass or not. I think those examples are less common even, um, and I've probably run out of useful things to say about them. So this is where I let someone like Jason or Sarah take over.
2: Well, I was, this is making me think out loud, which is generally what we do on the podcast, I that think, about um, humor, like you said, that is a hook for continuing to read or continuing to attend to the rest of the content versus humor that is um integrated with the content. Like I I maybe am writing a paper about climate change and I make a climate joke that's integral to the content versus I'm writing a paper about humor in science communication, unrelated to any topic, and I make a joke about The Bachelorette. That's clearly not related, right? But I think, and I'm and I'm wondering maybe not I think I'm I'm wondering to some of these content-related pieces of humor are um, inside jokes to some extent, right? So that they're written for a specific audience. You expect some people to get that joke and some people to not get that joke, presumably if they're reading outside their discipline or something. And do you think about that? Then when you're writing, and and how do you sort of manage that? I clearly didn't think about it up until this point, so, you know.
1: I, I think that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, so a piece of humor could do two things. It could recruit someone to a piece of writing. Uh, or given that they're that they're reading it, it could help them understand that writing. So you're, you're talking a bit about that second thing. In both contexts, it becomes... Worth thinking about the fact that not everyone sees the humor the same way, and that can have cultural or, or geographic or linguistic uh, components to it. Um, and and I haven't thought much about the second half of that, whether humor can help understanding. Because it's a harder question, and it's just it's easier to answer the easy questions, right? Um, but I think again, you want to be sure that at least the humor doesn't disadvantage people who don't get it, and and that's where uh, uh you know it's going to be especially important especially difficult to use humor well in enhancing understanding of something because mm. then the notion that if someone just doesn't get the joke it's fine they just don't notice and move on uh doesn't work perhaps as well when the the humor is part of establishing the, the science you're talking about so you know the red queen hypothesis uh in a um in 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 the 20th century in Uh, the Global North would have worked pretty well because a very large fraction of nerdy academics were familiar with Alice with a Looking Glass. Uh, Whether that worked as well in parts of the Global South, I don't know. Uh, Now, we often have a bit of an odd, um, uh, frankly, rather racist idea that people in other cultures won't get our jokes. Mm. Uh, Mm. I, I don't know why we think that people in other cultures, you know, couldn't have read European classics, or couldn't have figured out these jokes. It's it's a little odd. I think we may we may overdo the notion that uh, uh, oversell the cultural relativism of humor a little bit. Um, nonetheless, it's important to think about. And and I see Sarah sort of looking thoughtfully upwards, which suggests she's thinking about, which is great. So I have something. I I
0: have thought about this, and 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 kind of try to make this distinction. Not maybe not as clearly in. Um, some of the talks that I give about humor and, you know, humor used as a hook, right. To draw you in and kind of engage you. And then I, um, humor used to enhance understanding, I would say is not, maybe not exclusively, but oftentimes like what you said, Steve, it's a metaphor, right? You're using a metaphor and the metaphor might be funny because of you're taking some, complex idea and you're boiling it down to something that people recognize and they're like, they see it. And there's that surprise, which is oftentimes part of humor. And then they actually see that the parts make sense. Right. And so metaphor, I think is really powerful as an understanding tool. It has the same kind of contextual and audience issues that we were just talking about, but it is really a powerful lens by which we can understand science and um i use the example Matteo farinella who's a, a cartoonist uh, friend of mine wrote a paper about metaphor as microscope basically i can't remember the name of the, the title uh, we can post it in the show notes um basically his his written in it was a graphic paper uh in uh, cartoon form was all about um, how scientists can use metaphor to actually understand the science so beyond just communication you can actually use it to understand your own science which i thought was really really interesting
1: there's some of these metaphors are so familiar with to us now that we don't recognize as metaphor anymore yeah i'm thinking of the tree of life for example or the big bang right um those have just become our terms and we, we we almost forget they were born as as metaphor i don't know if those are would it would be and it would be some of his examples of metaphor that was important to understanding or not though yeah i can't remember what examples
0: it, he used in that paper but it's it's a great paper to to go through because it really lays out the why metaphor is
2: mm. we'll have to link it in the so show notes.
0: useful yeah yeah, you and will, I, had a, then I can read it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I had I had a great example of a of a humorous a humorous. And this is metaphor as well. Um, this this whole paper is humorous, and this is another example that I've I've used, and it's from the British Medical Journal. And if you guys don't know, British Medical Journal has an issue. It usually close to the holidays that is almost completely satirical, and some what? of the papers are like outlandishly satirical to the point of not even being satire just being funny and then other ones are kind of more pointed um yeah it's it's really worth a worth a peruse but uh the one that i use oftentimes is that the title is parachute used to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge colon systematic review of randomized controlled trials and so it's a fairly (laughs) short paper um and it basically says there aren't any randomized controlled (laughs) trials and it's you know super funny because you're thinking oh yeah how would how you you, the the visual image is that you get you get of you know researchers up in a plane like pushing people out of the plane you know this guy has a parachute this guy doesn't um obviously that wouldn't happen and the point of the paper is actually interesting because it's all talking about the evidence-based push in in medicine and it's like sometimes you can't run a randomized controlled mm-hmm. trial for something you have to use or other or methods you right you
1: can but you really should you really should yes, <laughs> you can you could, we have but boards you to prevent shouldn't. this kind yes. of thing like, and we have yeah, many yeah. examples where <laughs> like you can't
2: push people out of a plane randomly <laughs> with or without a parachute
1: that's a really good example jason because there are, there are all these places where where the The experiment just isn't ethical, and that's the point mm. they're making, right? And right. the metaphor is making that point. And it's not just true in medicine; it's true in conservation biology too. For example, where you have endangered oh, yeah, species sure. and you mm. propose some management intervention for an endangered species, and it's just not ethical to do anything mm. other than do the best thing you can think of. In this you national park, let's things kill all of the you
0: know a negative control is we kill all of the animals in this in this part, <laughs> right? Right. right. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's a great example of metaphor that really that really helps you understand the point. Mm-hmm.
3: I wonder though, Jason, you brought up the um the satirical issue, or Steve brought up the satirical somebody brought up the satirical issue. <laughs> there was is a bow tie in the satirical issue. And was it
2: was there. Obviously.
3: <laughs> obviously. Everything is. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, that me that just immediately made me think of the onion. Which is clearly yeah. the most accurate news source.
2: Yes, a Madison you know? <laughs> original.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, On Wisconsin. And so there you go. And so there are these news, sor- news sources. I just did air quotes when I said news source and journals that put out papers that are satirical and humorous. And then you have the complete other side of that where you have science that is bland and, you know, lacks adverbs as i've told my students more than once and, you know, pushes for this really diff- honestly difficult to digest but very, you know, direct discussion. If we're looking to increase interest and readability and your ability to interact with the material and possibly understand it better with humor, At what point do we tip the scales into people thinking that it's more like an Onion article?
1: I don't think we're very close to that point. I mean, it's it's a really interesting question, but I don't think it's one that has a lot of practical impact for our literature right now, because for example, uh, we, we scored. So titles are one of the the places in papers where humor is most accepted Uh, acknowledgements are the other one. Mm. Uh, We scored 2,400 titles. And for only I've now forgotten it was either 400 or 600 of them, but basically about a quarter did even one of our scorers detect even a small amount of humor in the title. Hmm. So I don't think we're close to a literature that's going to be mistaken for The Onion. There have been the odd exception. Um, there was a paper published in uh, the 60s in a biochemistry journal where the whole thing was in blank verse. Um, very strange. The journal actually uh, Print it with a with a footnote, and I don't remember really, I don't remember what the footnote actually said, like the actual wording, but what it meant was yes, we know. Don't ever send us another one of these. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so you know these these are really unusual, and and so while well, I agree that there's sort of a a point could come where the, the humor starts to be. Uh, Give us trouble in recognizing genuine work. I I don't think we're Mm. at much risk of approaching it. Um, We
2: should mention uh, that the Onion is a satirical news source, originated in Madison, Wisconsin. So, which is why I yelled on Wisconsin. It's interesting,
0: though. the 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 example that I gave, the British Medical Journal, there that issue is like kind of like the onion, right? It is intentionally intended to be yeah. intentionally like that, which is weird. I mean, the, the whole journal is very real, well respected. But but that issue is a little bit like the onion. But anyway. Yeah, so
1: the question, I guess, Jason, is how often does someone unwittingly share one of those articles uh, thinking that it's yeah. a real article? Does right. that ever I happen? I don't know. It happens Can I just say
2: that, so <laughs> yeah, true? This goes back <laughs> to the cultural aspect. I was born and, and raised in Malaysia. And then um I moved to the United States for for um college. And my mom, my parents came to visit me when I was in graduate school in, in Madison. I, I got my PhD at Wisconsin. And um, <laughs> my mom is a very avid consumer of news. My both my parents are. And so she loves to read. She tends to pick up things that, you know, in those street side newspaper type holders. Yes, kiosks that that she will read. And so we um, were walking down the street in Madison one day in the spring. It's very nice. And um, she picked up the onion. And I didn't notice it was the onion, right? And so we're sitting down to have a tea or something. She doesn't drink coffee, but, you know, I love coffee. So we're sitting down and um, she's reading the news, the news, the onion. And as I'm watching her, her face gets more and more puzzled, right? Because (laughs) the onion is meant to be read. You're meant to read the headlines of the onion and really not much else. Um, but, But her face is becoming more and more puzzled and just, you know, confused about what this is. So there is I think a lot of people in the United States would know that The Onion is a satirical news source, right? But there is some cultural differences here, which you know, it's not necessarily about humor, um but I do agree that I don't think I don't think we give enough credit, right? to other parts of the world that do also get the types of humor. I mean, Everything is so globalized. There's so much opportunity to access these kinds of things to some extent, right? Even if it's not on a laptop or something, there is internet access in the most, some of the most re- remote places in the world. And I'm not saying that there isn't a digital divide. We do still have that, of course. But so many people can access these sorts of popular things that I do think a lot of humorous. References are can be universal to some extent, right? Um, but then there's also different cultures of disciplines. Like, I, I, I don't know if, like, a joke made by a computational... Like, I, I probably wouldn't get a joke yeah. made by a computational scientist, no, right? no, no. Because I'm not a computational scientist.
0: Totally. There's a lot of niche humor. Um, and that's where I find, like, with with my red pen, black pen work, is it's like... <laughs> You know, there's stuff that's more universal. There's stuff that's sometimes accidentally universal because I'm I'm like, I have a very clear idea of the joke that I'm making. And everybody's like, oh, this is so funny because we do it exactly the same in our discipline. And then like, oh, cool. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, Yeah. But then there's stuff that's just obviously like very in jokey kind of. And I'm not intentionally in joking. I'm just like, oh, this is a funny thing that happens with. Yeah, you but know, you unintentionally
2: exclude a group from like, right. getting that joke, right? And yeah. then, like, is that exclusion? I mean, presumably that exclusion means the humor isn't acting as a hook any longer, or yeah, you know, it's like the to be or not to be joke. And in, in to some extent, like, I think if the humor is benign enough that it doesn't, it isn't detrimental. If it if the joke, if they don't get the joke, right, then maybe. It's establishing the boundaries of humor that you can use in your paper, perhaps. Right. <laughs> your... This, no, this is liked... a
1: really interesting uh, yeah. uh, uh, thread, and and one that you know it's really it becomes more of an ethics of communication thing, and that which was not what we were trying to do in that paper. Uh, but yeah, this is a really good question that, that if you use a joke that only some of your audience gets, what's you know what what's the ethics of
3: that? And uh, yeah. a, that's a, not a simple question. Yeah. Also, I think there's a lot to it about distributorship. You know, I mean, there's only so far that some of these papers are going to go. Like people aren't necessarily going to randomly look up, you know, X medical journal and say, oh, yes, I will read the medical journal today. Whereas, you know, you well, might even randomly if they
2: wanted to, they may not be able to. Oh,
3: this is gosh. Paywall. All right. All right. Now we'll do another podcast on paywalls. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> but, you know, with the onion, you unwittingly type in the wrong thing in Google in your first 10 hits for the onion. For better or worse.
2: For better or worse. So.
3: so I think there might be something to distributorship in that. Anyway, carry on, Jason. Uh, I was gonna say I was gonna ask Stephen about his
0: upcoming book. You've got a book in the works now, so you've you've written.
2: Are we at uh, Stephen now? We've Steve. 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 Oh, they're, both I said good. they're both fine. Dear Doctor Hurd.
0: Yeah. So yeah. So Doctor Hurd. Um, no, I I wanted you to you know get a chance to. Um, Tell us a little bit about your upcoming book. What's the, what's you, the Ma- subject? Where are you at? Thank you, McDermott, PhD.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, and your co-author! Cool
1: so, yeah, so yeah. Uh, I'm kind of excited. Uh, I've written two books now, The the Science Guide to Writing and then, and then my uh it's funny I call it my popular book, but that doesn't mean it's popular. It just means it's for the <laughs> popular audience, uh, Charles Darwin's Barnacle. But the new book is one I'm, I'm sort of excited about uh, because I think it fills feels a real need. And it's a book uh, we're calling Helping Students Write in the Sciences. So The Scientist Guide to Writing is, is a book that a person would read so they themselves could write better. But there's a big niche out there for a book – that a person would read to help them help others write better so meta. And, and many of us you know work with our yeah. grad students on writing or give writing assignments oh, and yeah, classes and boy i tell you writing is hard teaching writing is harder um we don't learn about writing we learn even less than nothing about how to teach writing in you in, mm-hmm. in a science kind yeah. of uh, training context so uh, I'm really lucky here because I'm, I'm going to work with uh, a wonderful co-author, uh, Bethann Garamon merkel who uh, actually has cred in uh, sort of the, the pedagogy of, of teaching writing, uh, which I don't. Um, uh, but and there's a, there's a it literature a about how to... a trend here,
2: Steve, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, yeah, a trend yeah. on your books.
1: We're, we're not supposed to talk about the fact right. that I write books. I don't know anything about um, <laughs> uh There's a, it's actually a big literature on... The pedagogy of teaching writing, and we know a fair bit, as Sarah, you would know, about how to teach communication effectively. But that literature to a science, to a scientist, to a science audience, is really impenetrable, uh, because you know we have our jargon, they have theirs, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, <laughs> and so, our, our our hope here is that we can we can. Uh, translate some of that for a, an audience that's like us, scientists who would like to help our students write better, um, and provide you know concrete advice that can that can help you help your students spend less time fighting with student writing and have more positive effect on it and wouldn't we all like to do both of those things um so that book is with the university of chicago press we've just signed the contract uh the sad part is we have to write the rest of it now uh so uh, you you can't see it immediately but we Uh, hope in the later part of 2024 that that will be on the bookshelves and we really hope that people will will want to 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 know what they can do to be better at helping their students, their postdocs, their their undergrads, their their early career colleagues. Uh that's uh, great. Get over this huge barrier to yeah. being an efficient and effective writer because it's so big a part of our jobs.
2: I would yeah. so I would love to read that book because I have so much trouble helping sort of work. Right. It's sort of it, you how do, you, how do you how do you do, do it? it efficiently how do you even do you even it, do yeah. it and, and, right it's hard end? because
1: you know you, you can look at a piece of writing and go you know this isn't quite right and 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 then you go oh i can't just say that i got to explain why is right. it right and what you should do and 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 with no training and it, it's often often you know what well, just doesn't it just isn't the way you, you should do this but explaining why and and knowing when when to make that comment and when when to hold it for next draft and all that kind of stuff is is really difficult. And I think we often spend way longer than we should being less useful than we want to be yeah. uh, when we're working with younger younger earlier career writers is what I should say. Um, so anyway, we, we, we hope that we can we can help. Uh, and um, uh, perhaps in the show notes you can link to a, a post we made announcing this and talking a bit about its contents because yes. uh, yeah, we hope there'll be people who will want to see this.
3: You I mentioned understand. you mentioned about a previous book that it was at least in part derived from some of your blog posts. Is this one similar, or how? What is how is it coming about?
1: Yeah, you know it. It, it actually explicitly is because uh, my my co-author Bethan uh, actually contacted me as a result of a post I had made on on my blog. Mm-hmm. I, I've talked a fair bit over the years about. Teaching writing and and about how I do my own scientific writing course and how I work with grad students and some of the joys and frustrations of working with grad students on their writing uh, and and I've had some ideas some of which uh, I think Beth with her actual knowledge of the field saw merit in some of which she did not uh, and that's I think where it's going to be really useful to take uh, her perspective she she has scientific cred but she also has that teaching the writing cred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and put it together with with sort of the experience I've had with my own grad students over many years, and and hopefully we can pull this off. So yes, it does come out of this sort of longer term interest in these kinds of issues. And and folks who want to dip into my blog at Scientists Use Squirrel will will see there's quite a few posts that that uh, hit on various bits of this. How how it is we go about helping other folks, younger, uh, earlier career folks, uh, write better. So yes, it it will become a book once we. <laughs> write it. That's, that's awesome. Once we write it,
2: that's key, really, right?
1: That's yeah. Key. But, I will say so Beth
2: Ann is great and I have met um Beth Ann. She invited me to give a seminar at at the University of Wyoming because she's in science communication and um she's also as a thank you gift which was so sweet, sent me a collection of postcards that she drew. She's also an amazing artist. Um so I will also link to her website so you can check out some of that art.
3: You should because she's awesome. That's great. So I had this one idea, and I've been thinking about this for a little bit as we've been talking. You know, Steve, you've been you've been thinking through these things and trying to present them explicitly, and doing a great job of doing of this on your blog and in books. And you've also got this training in ecology, and then we've got Jason over here who's doing red plum. pen black pen some, some i'm assuming some overlap in the training at least definitely. in some cases and i was thinking all right y'all red pen black pen a comic about the succession of scientific writing oh
2: I, <laughs> I just want to say an,
3: from an ecological point of view ecological but in terms of, of writing, writing, definitely
2: so I want I want to be able to do something like Matteo Farinella has done, right? Publish a, a journal article that right. is illustrated. But for some of us who can't hardly draw a stick figure, it just <laughs> isn't gonna work. I mean, is there um Jason, you have a ton of time to help me. I have out by I have lots of time. Yeah, all my papers, right? Like, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you asking generally? Um, I mean, try to illustrate how, social like...
2: science too. Illustrate yeah. survey yeah. data, huh? Yeah. Huh? I think it's. I,
3: yeah.
0: I think it's super useful, and I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of universities and institutions have scientific illustrators who can help with that, and sometimes they are, I mean.
2: Oh, way to punt.
0: You just punted on that. That was good. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah, Um,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Scientific illustrators. I I always tout them as like they are the go-to people, man. They are Julia. Serious artists, right? And and um but but yeah, I think it I I I think that can be such a an effective way of it's it's a again, a little bit like humor, right? You use it as a hook Mm -hmm. to draw people in, and when they look at a figure or that's a a cartoon or a comic it's they're like, I can read this, you know, even mm-hmm. if the ideas may be fairly complicated. Now it's harder to draw a simple comic mm-hmm. about a complicated idea, but yeah. Jason, um, do, you th-
1: do you think that's what graphical abstracts are going to become? Mm-hmm. Basically hooks mm-hmm. to draw people into papers. <laughs> I think that's wow. what
0: they're, what they're targeted at. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the journals that we've done graphical abstracts for, that's how they've written it as kind of that simple idea. And um, you know, you're you're trying to basically summarize everything in in a single figure, right? What's your take home message in a single figure and make it somewhat engaging? So yeah, I definitely think that's I mean, this that's, could be an going. amazing
2: subfield of science communication because yeah. You know, Artistic talent is not distributed equally. I'm just going to say.
1: I didn't get my share.
2: I see. Thank <laughs> you. Although I, I was just thinking it would be so great to have some of Beth Ann's illustrations and art in the book. That would be Ooh, just going to, yeah. you know, exactly throw my unsolicited advice <laughs> in there.
3: <laughs> I mean, I I would I'll also
1: just say like it. that. But I think that the, the contract may have
3: things to say about that too. Wow. mm I'll say it. My graphical abstracts are awful. Well,
1: it's, it's, they're they're new, right? And I don't think anyone knows what the hell they're for. Um, uh, and and so I think people are flailing a bit about. They're asked to make one. They they kind of go make. You want me to make a what and how? And And they usually take figure
0: one and they kind of dumb it down, right? Or simplify it. I should dumb it down.
1: bad. It'll be interesting to see in 10 or 15 years if we're still doing them and what they've evolved into.
2: I wonder what happened. Have you tried submitting a comic as a graphical abstract instead of a figure from the paper itself?
0: I haven't. I haven't done a graphical abstract in a little while. Like we haven't.
2: We don't have the, like I've never I've, been asked for one in communication. I've so.
0: done more and more comics as part of my work, Ooh. and I have uh, I've used some examples in in my talks where someone has asked me for like I want the summary of this um, the findings that we have in this paper, and then the paper is on uh, wet versus dry effects on uh, viruses in soil, for instance, and that was one that I did, and I did it in a very cartoony kind of kind of way, but that didn't.
3: I don't think that went to the graphical abstract. Yeah. Yeah, mine are basically terrible science clip art.
2: Clip <laughs> art. It's just you're just taking them. You just
3: And part <laughs> of figure one. It's like, oh, I got a picture. Let's add an arrow. There it goes. So it's in, wow. it's in
2: that like generic blue color too. You didn't even change the color from the Microsoft default.
3: I mean I tried, but <laughs> I'm not Jason, so my skill set is questionable at best. Does it have any watermarks? It all makes me feel much better
1: about not having done a graphical abstract yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't have watermarks.
0: Doesn't have watermarks. That's probably good because that's yeah, yeah, that's the first thing. Well, I hate to do this, I really do, because this is how all of our podcasts go along. Because we get on a roll and we're talking. I mean, just great stuff. Um, And really, really enjoyed this discussion today, Steve. And uh, I'd like everybody to uh, doff their um, bow ties. Set them aside until next time. Um, And thank you very much. And thank everyone, all of our listeners, for joining us on Planet SciComm.
1: Thank you. This was tons
0: of fun.